house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that has been euthanized by Matt Damon. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died and we're here to perform the autopsy. Perhaps we're here to perform some type of SNM non-sexual act. <laughs> uh, I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my dungeon brother, Joe Reed. I I feel like we should clarify a couple things up front. One of which is We are not sec- into mask play. <laughs> we're not we're not into mask play. Um uh, iron deficiency is real and we shouldn't make light of it. No. Um this is our second Randall Wallace movie, which took me <laughs> quite by surprise. Uh after uh, Secretariat, we did Secretariat very early. Um also another Malkovich movie. Digging into the filmography of Randall Wallace was a real eye opener and we'll get into it. Um yeah, we surprisingly for as starry a cast as this is, this doesn't get us close to six timers for anybody. It's our... I looked up the same thing because I was like, okay, surely yeah. we've got someone and it's truly no one. It's our it's second our first, DiCaprio. It's our first Gabriel Byrne. Is yeah. it our second DiCaprio? I thought it's it was our, like our sec- third. Uh, give me a second. I I had this information and then I uh, I. It it's might because be we're third. always like, well, we could do Body of Lies. You're right. Like, it is we our third. We don't want to watch Body of Lies. Our third. Uh, at some point, we should do Body of Lies, though. Uh, our third DiCaprio after J. Edgar, Shutter Island, and now The Man in the Iron Mask. I think it's our second Jeremy Irons. Is what I was thinking of. Uh, yeah, because... second Irons after a recent one uh no after um house of the spirits house of the spirits of course yeah. and then it's our fourth malkovich uh reunited secretariat and mary riley mary riley yeah thank you for setting me up for the whisper um anyway but yeah you would have expected a lot more i also uh, it's it's we don't even have that many Peter Sarsgaard, uh, which teeny is... tiny, uh, the the babyest Peter Sarsgaard that ever did baby in this movie. Our second Peter Sarsgaard after wait for it rendition. So, um, also can I mention at this point before I forget? Visually, they don't make a ton of sense as father and son, but vocally. Peter Sarsgaard as John Malkovich's son is scarily 
appropriate. Like in they this both, movie, they are very similar type of soft boys. Soft boys, yes, but also just like li- close your eyes and listen to their voices back to back. Which, like, at one point, I wasn't looking at the screen; I was looking at something else, and I was all of a sudden their scene was happening, and I was listening to their voices, and I'm like, "Holy shit!" Peter Sarsgaard and John Malkovich have that have. There's a quality to their enunciation that is. You're very, totally very right, similar. though. I'm not quite sure. I agree that they don't make sense visually. Maybe, Maybe. it's just because Sarsgaard is taller than him, but like Maybe. at least this age of Sarsgaard, it made. It was good casting. Good casting, in my opinion. Good casting, which makes up for uh, the picture of indifferent casting when it comes to um, nationalities and accent work in this movie, <laughs> which truly... And A again, movie that asks, what is British? What is French? What, what does it indeed, mean to be alive? A the person 90s, on a certain the 90s the were... A, yes. The 1990s were a golden era of... Um, we don't give a fuck about accents where you could show up in a, in a time period or a country wherever and just do your regular accent. Uh, Jeremy Irons is English. Uh, uh, John Malkovich and Leonardo DiCaprio, both American, both doing their American accents. Uh, Gabriel Byrne is Irish, but I think is attempting to tamp that down a little bit and do a little bit more of it. He's the only one who I As think he does is, often. As he does often, sort of stepping out of his native accent a little mm-hmm. bit. And then uh, Gerard Depardieu playing... Is um, very en French. Pepe Le Pew uh, uh, personified. He's It's very <laughs> en That's exactly right. That's 100%. I can't wait to talk about Gerard Depardieu in this movie. Um, uh, before we get too far into the movie, though, yes. we do have a little bit of business about our upcoming mailbag, which will be next week, the yes. day after Christmas. Uh, this is our Christmas lead-up I suppose. Listen, what what is Christmas about if not reuniting with your family? And by that, I mean the the brother you've been keeping in a dungeon uh, your entire uh, reign of the Listen, aristocracy. Um, this Christmas, um, uh, get your get your get your let your brother free. Let your brother out of the dungeon. Invite him to Christmas dinner. Um, give him a give him a Target gift card or something like that. Just something that really from the heart. You know what I yeah. mean? That really says. Sorry, I'm going to put you back in the Bastille, but for the moment, um, let's go get a Starbucks. You know what he needs in that dungeon, though? What would be a really thoughtful gift? Some new socks. Christmas socks. Does Who doesn't love mm-hmm. some little red and white festive socks that are probably a little too small and you're not going to wear them in regular life? But you can find thought- him some cute ones on, like, I don't know, uh, funsocks.com. Yeah. Uh, I love my twin brother. Listen, uh, uh, wait, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a pun on ho, ho, ho that you could do for like, uh, uh-huh. uh, ho, 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 yeah, <laughs> they're all That's, French. French Santa says, ho, ho, ho. Um, uh, oh God, what do you bring to, to a white elephant party all between musketeers? Oh, well, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, booze, lazy choice, but sure. Well, only some of them booze it up i feel like i think uh porthos boozes it up for the revelry of it all athos boozes it up to to drown his pain away uh aramis is probably uh you know pious and and is is abstaining and you know d'artagnan is he he's secreting away a bottle of wine to have with the queen he, he has a point. secret vineyard yes right <laughs> d'artagnan wines 
<laughs> okay. Um, this movie. All right. This is, was the other thing I wanted no, to bring up. No, this is the thing we got to do. <laughs> okay. We got into this because our mailbag is next oh, week. Yes. Listeners, you have, if you're listening to this when the episode drops, you have like 24 hours. We're taking yeah, get to it. mailbag get to submissions it. through the 20th. Next week, you're going to have your questions answered. We will right. do, uh, we will get in as many questions as possible. Thank you for your generosity and your thoughtful questions. Um, uh, you can go check out our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Our pin tweet right now, uh, has the mailbag submission, uh, tool. Uh, you can also find it on our Tumblr page, this had oscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You can also email us those questions at had oscarbuzz at gmail.com. Woohoo! Back to you, the French. You did it. Okay. So the one thing I wanted to say is our, our, Standards for this podcast remain as rigorous as ever, but every once in a while, like the definition of what had Oscar buzz ebbs and flows, and we we tend to err on the side of what would be a good conversation. I would say that the Man in the Iron Mask, if it had Oscar buzz, was um, early stage and somewhat fleeting. There's many Oscar adjacent conversations to be had, but I think for a movie that opened in the first quarter of the year in 1998 a costume um, drama at that right well that's this is the thing is the fact that it's a costume drama based on tangentially uh, a great work of literature that featured people with oscar pedigrees that's probably what qualifies it for oscar buzz right. um by the end of 1998 nobody was expecting the man in the iron mask to show up on uh nomination lists or anything like that but it does have one heck of an Oscar adjacent story to it, which is uh, its existence in relation to the Titanic juggernaut of right. 97, 98, which we will certainly be talking about because Gonna that get into is. It. Listen, what does everybody want on Christmas but to watch and talk about a James Cameron movie? <laughs> God, here we go quite again. Uh, with that. I, for one, am very excited to see this new Mayor of Easttown season, The Way of Water. <laughs> I am here to um, uh, to watch this Catherine Bigelow stealth sequel uh, to The Weight of Water. This is now just The Way of Water. Got so, it. Got it. Um, God help me from four hours of fucking Pandora that wait me, whatever. Um, Would you rather spend three hours and eight minutes on Jim Cameron's Pandora or spend three hours and eight minutes in the chintzy hellscape of a store Pandora? Oh, wait, what is the store Pandora? I've never been to, like uh, the to a Pandora. The little beads. Oh. They're like soccer moms love. Is that a thing? I have no idea. I'm, Please in, I'm come ignorant. to the Midwest. It is a thing. It is I'm awful. Ignorant. Apologies to all listeners who love it's, their beads. Is it like a craft store that sells beads? No. I'm like, like Will Arnett in that, in that Arrested like... Development scene where he's like, beads? That's me. I'm... <laughs> what? No, tell tell me about like, the beads. It's like, it's like, um, it's, it's jewelry where it's like you get this little bracelet that you can put a bunch of different charm beads on it. Oh, uh, like... this is sounding vaguely familiar. So it's not like it's not like Build a Bear. I level can't believe you like... don't know what Pandora is. It sounds a little mostly Pandora. I think of like the the internet radio station. 
It's kind of like Build-A-Bear if you have run out of Yankee candles to buy. I do love a Yankee candle. Oh, it's Christmas season. They burn like shit. I I gotta pick up. A couple Yankees for the season. I gotta get one that smells <laughs> Not the like... first time you'll be saying that. On- <laughs> uh, looking for a good time, Yankees? This is our episode about gift giving. We didn't that's realize my, it was an episode about That's gifts. my Sharon Horgan playing a like uh, old-timey prostitute voice or whatever. Yes. You're looking, looking for a good time, Yank. All right. Anyway, um, Man in the Iron Mask. Man in the Iron Mask. Okay, this movie's bad, but I will say... I had a good fun time watching this definitely bad movie. (laughs) December is the month where we do these really poorly critically reviewed movies. And I watch it and I'm like, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I I, I don't understand what people's problems with is with this movie. It's soapy and it's like silly. And every single one of the actors is probably in a different movie. Oh, yeah, it's true. But... It's fine. It's not anything to get so angry about as to be like, it's horrible. I sure wouldn't get angry about this movie, but I think it's I one of, I think it's bottom tier of all the movies that we've talked about. Um, I will also say, even though I know that it's a different movie, when we got to the end credits, I was absolutely waiting for, for all, all for one and all for love to yeah, show up. Yeah, yes, yeah. 100%. And it should have. Because honestly, what would the problem have been? Just license the song. <laughs> it's what we now expect from the end credits of... Wait, so let's I line mean, up... I mean, that was also from the 90s. Like, if it was today, you could have the gritty cover of All for One. Who would do that? It would be Wait. like... Or do you just do Post like what Malone. the Batman did and do like bring up an old Nirvana song and play that over the end credits <laughs> of like dark and gritty musketeers? Wait, so let's, let's do the crossover. So in the 1993, I believe it was 93, Three Musketeers, the Disney Three Musketeers. Kiefer Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland was, I believe, Aramis. So that's Jeremy Irons. Oliver Platt was Porthos, who is Gerard Depardieu. Charlie Sheen, I guess, was Athos, who is John Malkovich. And then Chris O'Donnell was a young D'Artagnan, also who's Gabriel Byrne. Also, the fact that I mentioned the accents and how everybody's doing their own accent and very much unconcerned, the one exception being anytime anybody says the name D'Artagnan, at which point <laughs> they really just like layer on the French, the Francois. Uh, it, it's really D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan. Like, they're really, really hitting you with it. And uh, in no other, like, even when they say Louis, it's just sort of like Louis, right? Where it's it's not like Louis, Um, uh, but uh, not like an interview with a vampire quality, like Louis. Um, Yes. So there's that. Anytime I see a movie like this, I think I could be watching Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. (laughs) <laughs> and having a better time is sort of how I feel like with a movie like this. But it's Robin also... Hood, Prince of Thieves, you get Kevin Costner's butt. Man sure in the Iron Mask, you get Gerard Depardieu's butt. I, unfortunately, I have to report that Gerard Depardieu has a wagon and a half in this has movie. Has a nice dumper. He really, really point. does. He's just like running around, free as you please, chasing the 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 you know uh harlots around and whatnot someone's hauling groceries (laughs) it's it's really something else good for him um wait there was a line of dialogue of his i think 
um, that I wrote down. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Um, did I? Hold I on. mean, it, I wrote down basically all of the like gross sexual innuendos that they said in the first scene because it's like oh yeah somebody refers to him being hung like a horse donkey it is a donkey chris we are in the year of the donkey you oh should know that's right that's that, right um yes yeah we are we learn in the first five minutes that uh that porthos is hung like a donkey it is confirmed by a third party so really we are getting like uh real proof as by the way poor jeremy irons as aramis who at this point is a jesuit priest um is really just like white knuckling it through this conversation with porthos and uh so he's the charlotte we (laughs) no uh aramis is the is the miranda aramis is the one with uh business concerns right aramis is uh you know is working hard and making know. plans. D'Artagnan's the carry. 100% D'Artagnan is I the mean, carry. Yeah. Uh, Porthos is 100% the Samantha. I think Athos is the Charlotte in that, like, most of his story is about uh, family and children, which at some point Charlotte's storyline just becomes about that. Um, and also that... Uh, so at some point Miranda's story just becomes that, though. Well, that is true. And also, so you're, you're to, to back up maybe your assertion that Athos is Miranda, uh, Miranda and Carrie have major falling out scenes together. And of course, that happens in this too. You may be right. You may be right. No one really has, ever has beef with Charlotte. This is true. Charlotte and Miranda have it for a second. But, but like in Three Musketeers, everybody sort of defers to Aramis as being the wisest of them and that never happens in sex in the city like charlotte never gets granted that uh that status whereas sometimes miranda they all sort of realize that miranda's smarter than all of them and and they just sort of you know have to sit with that for a moment anyway um oh i can't wait to talk about this movie and peter sarsgaard is shady ass (laughs) shut up no peter sarsgaard in this is either brady or um, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Charlotte, or uh, uh, Charlotte's <laughs> dog. <laughs> One of the two. Um, poor Peter Sarsgaard in this movie gets chases off after a piglet, and then while he's chasing off after a piglet, a uh, horny little shitty Leonardo DiCaprio comes and like scams on his lady, and and there we have it. An actor, a, a character who probably should have been played by an actress who we would have recognized. Like, I was kind of bummed that it didn't turn out to be like Sophie Marceau or something like exactly. that. Exactly. What I do think this movie is deficient on is an Isabella Johnny, a Julie Delpy in the right. younger role. Like, right. Exactly. A uh, Gabrielle Anwar or something like that. I'm allowed to say this about one movie in my lifetime. The female performances in this movie are not good. Are lacking, I will yeah. say. Also, though, there's only real two actual female characters besides like Porthos's harem of willing ladies. But like, um, Christine, also, do you believe the balls on this story to have a Raul <laughs> and Christine, uh, romance? Like, and give us no songs to back it up? Like, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, poor tortured. The Queen, Queen Anne, Queen Mo- the Queen Mother, who pines for D'Artagnan 
and and is played by an actress I've never seen in anything before, whose name is I don't want to slight these women. Um uh da 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 Anne Oh god, French. I'm so bad at French. How would you pronounce her her surname? Perillo or Perio? Perillo or Perio. Alright, I'll give you that. And then Judith Judith Godrush as Godrush as Christine. Christine Bellafort. Uh, 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 songbird of the Paris Opera, and uh, no, I don't know. Christine Tye will sing it for you, sir. <laughs> and of course, Hugh Laurie as uh, Madame Giry, and is 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 uh, <laughs> uh, poor Hugh Laurie shows up. This is definitely this Hugh is Laurie few, definitely had more fun than most people in this movie, though. Hugh Laurie and John Malkovich together again after the Annie Lennox "Walking on Broken Glass" music video. So this is canonically uh, Annie Lennox cinema, if nothing else, which you know that does. Annie me. Lennox should have ended this movie with a song, gritty one for all Annie Lennox cover. Actually, yep. Annie Lennox would probably rip the shit out of that song. Annie Lennox could have played Queen Anne of Austria. She could Annie have played Lennox should have played Louis. The mo- <laughs> both roles, both twins. Um uh no, Annie Lennox as the Queen Mother would have uh, rocked and or rolled in this role. So, uh I would have loved it. Um and rounding out the cast in terms of uh, recognizable faces, were you an alias person? Did you watch Alias? Sadly, no. So Edward Adderton, who plays the sort of uh, second in command of the Musketeers, who is loyal to D'Artagnan and who won't doesn't really relish having to fight him at the end, um, he played Sidney Bristow's fiance and the pilot of Alias, who gets murdered by Ron Rifkin and the the secret shadowy uh, SD six, and that's what spurs her into turning. turning herself to the CIA and becoming a counter terror or a counter agent and spy um, kicks off the whole, the whole thing as it were. Um, That's what I know him from. Anyway, man in the iron mask, which we haven't even mentioned Leonardo DiCaprio, which is really kind of telling because he's the whole reason why this movie was either even a thing. This movie made Mm -hmm. a ton of money and, it did so on a global scale too, because of course yes. Titanic is making money on a global scale, right? And it's making money based on almost not entirely, but like I read an article where from 1998, where people box office sort of uh, observers sounded surprised, where they were like, "We were expecting a male audience because it has." sword fighting and musketeers and adventure and action and all this sort of stuff. And they're like, actually the audience was like 55% women who came to see Leonardo DiCaprio. And the tone was very like surprised. And I was like, you dumb clucks in 1998. Didn't know your ass from your elbow. At that time, I I remember being like, no shit. No shit. No shit. I've talked to a number of women. (laughs) Yeah. Seen Titanic. I yes, I know girls in 1998. I know what movie they're rushing out to see in 1998, and it's Leonardo DiCaprio times Dieu, and that's what they're going to see. Yeah. Be wigged like a porcelain doll. Oh, okay. So Leonardo DiCaprio at this point in his career is an angelic About to make Don's plum. Uh, well, yeah, no, um, an angelic faced. 
Skin, Oscar nominee. Already Skin Oscar nominee. As unbothered as as would be fit somebody who has now made enough money that he no longer has to care about anything. All of a sudden he's hit the big time, right? Um no, but like the softness, you don't understand. You really have to watch a movie because I think Titanic is so burned in our memory. You really have to watch a movie like The Man in the Iron Mask to really appreciate just how soft featured Leonardo DiCaprio was at this stage of his career. Like to an extreme degree. And so to then add to that, this sort of flowing mane of Lydia Tarr style blonde hair. Like it's kind of the same style, right? Um, Lydia Tarr with pin curls. Plus the flowy robes that would befit Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King. Do you know what I mean? So, like, the all of the heaviest mumu caftan you have ever seen, and it drapes, all, and it all contributes to again. It adds to that softness. All of this, uh, the stuff, adds to the softness. And so then you take all that softness and you put it in a character of this sort of really like fuckboy doesn't begin to describe just the shittiness of uh the the version of louis that we get in this movie and you're just like oh this fucking guy like you really really hate him and it's interesting that these uh audiences that flocked to go see the man in the iron mask because they were in love with jack dawson then goes to see this movie where the bad leo you you really hate and the good leo is behind a titular iron mask for like <laughs> the good first more than just the first half of this movie you don't see philippe's face for a very long time in this movie like the man of the iron mask plot doesn't really even come around until the halfway mark of this movie yeah like a lot of the first half of this movie is about the musketeers sort of coming to their breaking point with Louie. And so I don't know. I was, I would love to have exit interviewed the girls who went to see this for Leo and to see what they, they thought about this movie. They probably left satisfied for what they wanted. He has his shirt off more than once in this movie. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's true. You don't see his butt like you see Porthos's butt, though. They He's getting out of bed with a lady, and there's a lot of comforter <laughs> action that uh, Well, that their obscures. gay friends also left happy. <laughs> well, I no, I shouldn't just say girls, because yes, because uh, boys who had an idea about uh, things also uh, flocked to go see this movie. Before we get into the plot description, we should say, in the whole box office run of Titanic, you know, Titanic was number one for, what, four months? or something crazy lost in space famously hilariously the movie that dethroned it from number one at the box office man in the iron mask is the one that came closest i thought i put it in the outline that it's like within three hundred thousand dollars of that titanic to the point where i found an article that was written the morning like the monday morning and they hadn't gotten final numbers and at that point it was a dead heat it was essentially a tie, a functional tie between Titanic between and the Man of the Um Right, a, th- a three-way Leo tie. But so uh, I listen to the list of movies that opened opposite Titanic during its box office run, right? Uh, not a complete list, but so uh, 
Tomorrow Never Dies, end of 97, Tomorrow Never Dies. Then you get into early 98, Fallen, the Denzel Washington movie where uh, people are getting possessed by the devil. Have you ever seen Fallen? Yes. It's not a bad movie. Spice World opened up in this uh, era. The Ethan Hawke, Gwyneth Paltrow, Great Expectations, which I saw again recently and is kind of a wild movie, like kind of a a crazy adaptation. Um, The Replacement Killers, uh, the Chow Yun-Fat, Mira Sorvino movie, Uh, Blues Brothers 2000, The Wedding Singer, very popular movie, The Wedding Singer, The uh, Perfect and Unassailable Sphere, starring uh, icon Sharon Stone, among others. (laughs) Um, Dark City, the uh, um, Alex Proyas movie, uh, Dark City, U.S. Marshals, of course, the sequel to The Fugitive, The Big Lebowski, The Man in the Iron Mask, Primary Colors, Wild Things, the re-release of Grease, and then finally, after 16 weeks, as you mentioned, Lost in Space, the oddest choice, just the most (laughs) nondescript spring blockbuster knocks off titanic after 16 weeks it's a really interesting collection of movies really puts you back in a time and place that's for sure also man in the iron mask opens not the weekend of but the weekend before the oscars in which titanic would win best picture yes we'll talk about the leo relation to those oscars yes on the other side of the plot description which joe reed is tasked to do this week i am i am are you prepared to do so I am. I may run long. Looking at it now, I have it written out, and I and, and it seems are you trying long. to say that this plot is convoluted? No, I'm just saying that I have no ability to self edit. So ah, here we are. Relatable. <laughs> yes. On that note, Joseph, read your 60 second plot description for the Man in the Iron Mask. Uh, we should give some. <laughs> yeah, we should, in fact. Why don't listen? You give we already some said the whole cast. Obviously, it's based on the Alexandre Dumas novel, but uh, adapted and directed by Randall Wallace. We'll get into it. Joseph, mm-hmm. read your 60 second plot description for the Man in the Why Iron. Why don't you read Mask. a cast list though, too, Chris? We said everybody. We okay. said all these names already. Okay. 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 Am I am I delaying? Am I am I am I procrastinating? Perhaps. Are, are you stalling? Oh, um, yes. Your sixty-second plot description for the Man in the Iron Mask starts now. All right, Leonardo DiCaprio plays King of France Louis the Fourteenth, who is just a giant preening piece of shit who wages war across Europe and chases tail around Versailles while his people starve, and he flippantly sends them rotten fruit. Naturally, his people want to murder him, including an active plot among the Jesuits, uh, led in secret by former musketeer Aramis. Only Louis doesn't know that, so he sets Aramis on a mission to root out and kill the secret Jesuit leader, at which point Aramis realizes it's time to get rid of the king. Fortunately for him, he was privy to a plot at Louis's birth, at which he had a twin brother, Philippe, who was sent into hiding for political reasons, and then when Louis was made king, he placed Philippe in an iron mask and locked him up in the bowels of the Bastille. Aramis gathers his musketeer buddies together, Porthos, who spent his retirement boozing and whoring around Paris, and Athos, whose son Louis Louis sent to the front lines to be killed so Louis could make the kid's girlfriend his mistress. And then there is loyal D'Artagnan, whose dedication to the king he knows is the worst, suggests a deeper connection, which is fully given away every time D'Artagnan casts a longing glance at the queen mother. None of these people should be noted have remotely the same accent. Anyway, Aramis and the musketeers, minus D'Artagnan, carry out this plot, and it works for about an hour until Louis gains the upper hand and sends Philippe back to the Bastille. The Muskies make one more attempt to free him, and D'Artagnan finally joins them and reveals that he's Louis and Philippe's father, obviously, and then he dies while saving Philippe from Louis's dagger, and the truth is revealed, and and it turns the entire musketeer order against Louis, and they send him into the Bastille and the Iron Mask, and Philippe becomes Louis the Sun King, and according to the closing voiceover, was beloved by all, no further questions. 
the end. 18 seconds over time. I am sorry, Joseph Reed. You will be sent to the Bastille. Uh, God damn it! Not the mask! Not the mask! (laughs) Okay, so my question is, when did Philippe... Okay, if there were, you know, if there's twin brothers, first of all, Philippe, if you're named Philippe, clearly you're the other twin. You're not the A twin, you're the B twin. Wow. Philippe. Wow. Uh, All due respect to Philippe's out there. Yeah. Um, When did they put a mask on him? Who puts an iron mask on a baby? Well, he wasn't a baby. He was, he wasn't sent into the Bastille. He was sent into hiding, right? And then he wasn't sent into the Bastille until Louis became king. So and then he, you know, and then he masked him up. But but he was a boy king. He was a boy king. They don't really. I don't know if they lay out the plot as as uh, as rock solid as you would you would want them to. But yes, your concerns are valid. Putting a young person in the torture. Did they have a a small version of the mask when he was small faced, and then did they have to like fashion a larger mask when he got? older and did at that point somebody because the whole point of the iron mask is that nobody would look in and say hey that guy looks a whole lot like the king right. um so i also love at the end when they send louis into the bastille with the iron mask and they're like first of all you shut up second of all <laughs> we're gonna put you in the bastille and we're gonna make sure that only a deaf mute comes and brings you your food so that nobody can ever know your identity <laughs> and i'm like huh like that's really specific. Okay, like I, I, I guess I guess that's what we're doing. Um, yeah, a little convoluted of a plot. I will say that there were moments, there were relationships in this movie that got me a little bit more than I expected to. Considering I don't think this is a very good movie. One of which is. I kind of get Aramis's uh, sort of dedication to doing the right thing and to atoning for like the one bad thing he's ever done, right? He willingly was party to putting this kid in an iron mask in the Bastille for the good of the country and for the good of, you know, peace in France or whatever. And it's you know something he he feels like he has to atone for the other relationship i actually really bought into somewhat despite myself is grieving father john malkovich and unsure teen about to be placed on the throne uh, philippe you know i right i actually kind of bought into their couple scenes together at the end when Philippe's like, you want to be my dad? Like, I was like, oh, like that's kind of sweet. <laughs> um, and that's sort of the extent of it. That's sort of the extent of what I liked about this movie, besides like the fun of, you know, the accents. It, and like I said, it's, it's soapy. So it's like, it's never I do love exactly boring. No, it's like, not boring. It's bad, but it's not boring. Yeah. Um, it's and that's too heterosexual sometimes. to be camp, oh, too. Right. That but, is true. You can tell you know, this is I made by um, a, a Christian oaf, Randall Wallace, I feel like. Oh, boy. So you Let's brought up Randall that. Wallace, which I didn't even remember this as a Randall Wallace movie. And then when His I saw His directorial it, debut. Directorial debut, he gets to direct his first feature after winning the best original screenplay Oscar no. for what? 
Braveheart. Nominated. I don't believe he won. Oh, right, right. He loses to <laughs> Brian Singer. He um, No, Christopher McQuarrie. Brian Singer oh, did not write right, the screenplay right, for Brian The Usual Singer Suspects. Uh, Never Christopher wrong. McQuarrie. Did. I'm off my rocker today. We're but, but... Uh, Randall Wallace did win the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Original Screenplay. Um, Christopher McQuarrie for The Usual Suspects was not nominated. Randall Wallace beats out. Are you ready? Get ready. Aaron Sorkin for The American President. Fantastic screenplay. Amy Heckerling for Clueless. Fantastic screenplay. PJ Hogan for Muriel's Wedding. Fantastic screenplay. And Woody Allen for Mighty Aphrodite, which it's he's Woody Allen. At that point, he's, you know... A less problematic figure, sort of. Um, who are you voting for? Who are you? Who am I voting for? I am. It's tough. I'm flipping a coin between the American president and Clueless. I'm voting for Heckerling. Yeah, I'm probably voting for Sorkin. You know me. Um, I love American, American president, president. Good so movie. Much. Fantastic movie. Um, and at that point, especially pre West Wing, pre everything else, uh. Full cocaine. Well, yes, but also like the fact that because like so much of the American president is replicated in some way on the West Wing. Um, but right. at this point, it's just like what a great sort of throwback to, uh, you know, very the very sort of um, throwback to like the Frank Capra of it all. It feels very much sort of uh, uh, original in its sensibility in that in the 90s of that moment. I definitely think I would have gone for the American president. It's wild, though, that Braveheart is given a screenplay award of any kind. It's Right. Do you remember, like, we went through an era for a while there where I'm thinking of Titanic, I'm thinking of Gladiator, where movies win Best Picture with the full-on front street acknowledgement that the screenplays are not very good. And sometimes they get nominated. I think what Titanic was not nominated, Gladiator... For screenplay, no. And Gladiator was nominated but uh, i think win. it might have been give me a second to look that up but anyway just the in, the the intrigue of that where it's like at some there was definitely an era and i think we are definitely in kind of an opposite era where best picture is almost more connected to best screen to us to a strong screenplay than mm. it is to a big directorial spectacle that doesn't have the bones in it you know well, I mean? and the Academy has decided to distinguish between those. It, it, it's, you know. It, director it's, director and picture are a lot more separate entities now than they were in the 90s, especially. Director is more spectacle-based or vision-based, yes. whereas Best Picture is How Did It Make You Feel? Yes, Gladiator was nominated for original screenplay and lost, of course, to Cameron Crowe for Almost Famous. Um but yeah, you don't see that. I think if the 2000 Oscars were voted on in 2020, I definitely think you would have gotten something like Traffic. Interestingly, it's interesting that Traffic wins director and then Gladiator Picture. I think it would be probably flipped or I think it would be flipped probably. And you would have gotten Ridley Scott getting director for Gladiator because Gladiator's the spectacle and Traffic getting best picture because Traffic at the time was seen as... um the more grounded uh applicable I'm not quite to sure I agree because so much of I mean like a lot of gladiator success was attributed to Ridley Scott, but I think even more so like 
traffic in a way that it's like, well, actually, Aaron Brockovich is the movie Soderbergh should have won for. Sure, but that's very much us talking about it. But like, it was so much credited to his directorial vision and, you know, his personal style. You're not wrong there. I, I'll, I'm just I'm just sort of musing the fact that like something like a split picture director thing tends to not go for the spectacle as best picture anymore. The spectacle right. in a split tends to go to director. Well, and my thing is actually kind of the reverse back towards Braveheart Apollo 13, whereas even in the modern era, the thing we're talking about here results in best picture wins for movies that I don't like. Right. But like you kind of wish in the past that it's like, well, just because Apollo 13 was so derailed by um, Ron Howard, not getting that director nomination that it's like, yeah, but you could have still voted for Apollo 13 to win best picture. Like it's still fine to say that that's the number one movie. But like, when was the last time that best picture went to a movie that was seen as, I guess it's Birdman, right? That was, and even that got a nominee or one screenplay. That's such a weird year though. Yes. Yes. I agree. And when um, you have Mad Max in that Best Picture lineup, you know, and racking up a bunch of prizes, mm-hmm. that movie is so, like, bug-eyed bug nuts that it makes something like Birdman seem way more normal by comparison. Right, right. We're just in a very different era, where is even movies mm-hmm. that people, Best Picture winners that that, you know, people don't like as much like green book and coda and when i say people i mean people we know people in our circle i think coda and green book were very much liked by a wider population Um, i mean i do actually think that there we could see the reverse this year obviously it's still very early but the more like broadly sentimental movie could be the one that wins best director and then you could have the one that is positioned more as the visionary type of movie as the best picture winner well what's funny is when you said broadly sentimental i didn't quite know what you were talking about which i think is going to be a <laughs> well feather. because everything, everything everywhere, everywhere is, is very sentimental. sentimental is very yeah. sentimental so i think and i think that's going to be one of the reasons why maybe it does win if it does win back to the prison you shall go and into the mask you hate wear it until you love it all right, Chris, we are breaking into this coverage of an escaped prisoner at the Bastille. Um, everybody uh, take shelter in your homes. If you are taking shelter with Porthos, God God bless you. Um, uh, have a good time, I guess. <laughs> and uh, if you to- see a stray uh, French man in an iron mask outside in this December cold, if you're cold, they're cold. Bring them inside. <laughs> warm their mask by the fire but not too much because uh iron is a conductive property and that can heat up really quickly so wow, like, you want to be very about careful that about during that. the episode but that had to have been uncomfortable uh yeah an iron mask yes yeah <laughs> well we're talking about it now because this is going to be in the episode because we are uh updating our wonderful listeners on the current state of the vulture movie fantasy league with the as... most important update of the season at that because our yes. favorite major precursor Yes, the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards nominations dropped end of last week. Um, you know that I had a hand in uh, crafting this movie Fantasy League because we definitely get points <laughs> for the M4Gs. I had to, I like, I, uh, there was a meeting where I was like, 
just double checking. Like M4G's points are there, and they're like, "Yes, Joe. Like they, we got him." It's <laughs> just like okay, just making sure. Um, yeah. So that Critics' Choice was also this week. Critics' Choice was as if you know anything about the Critics' Choice Awards, you know that like they just throw the nominations out there like candy corn. So yeah, like, there if was you, a if ton you know of anything about the Critics' Choice Awards, you know that they do not have constituencies for ties. Right. No, God, no. There are like 13 nominations in a single category. Like, go for it. Yes. Um, so that was the biggest points bonanza. I believe that occasioned the uh, biggest single point earning day of the pool. I initially thought it was Fableman's, but then I recalculated Chris and it was everything everywhere all at once. Uh, got 140 points just off of the Critics' Choice Awards. So they are right now... Everything everywhere all at once, just based on awards points, guilds and, and, uh, independent spirits and golden globes and critics choice and all that. Uh, more than a hundred points ahead of the second place movie, which is Tar. I will say Tar did, we've talked about this before. This is the time of year where Tar really needed to come through and they did basically. Like Tar did really, really well in, uh, in Critics' Choice Award season and early precursor nominations. So that's good. They're in second. Banshees of Inisherin, a strong third at this point. Fableman's fourth. Th- this is all taking box office out of account, by the way, listeners. So um, Fableman's is fourth. Women Talking is fifth in a way that, like, it's interesting because don't you have a little bit of an impression that, like, Women Talking could be doing better in Precursor Season? One million percent. It's almost, I mean, like, that movie hasn't opened yet. It'll be opening uh, shortly after this uh, episode airs, but, like, yeah. it hasn't really had its moment, but it does feel like it's not showing up as much as you might have expected at the beginning of the season. Well, by the numbers, it's hanging in fifth. There is a bit of a, there's a drop off from one to two between everything everywhere and tar. There's a drop off between four and five Fablemans to women talking. Um, but it's got 180 awards points so far, which is pretty good. Babylon is in sixth and Babylon didn't start scoring points until the Golden Globe. So like all of those Babylon points are like within the last seven days, essentially. So, um, Top Gun Maverick in seventh, tied with Elvis, which Elvis is another one who all of Elvis's points have come pretty much in the last week. Glass Onion in uh, ninth, actually tied for ninth, uh, uh, is Glass Onion and After Sun with 120 points. And that's your top 10. And then knocking on the door is Avatar The Way of Water, which is going to get 110 awards points plus all of those box office points that are impending. And we'll talk about those next week. Yes. So those are your best the best bet movie items at this point. And that's not getting into smaller items that really are paying off like RRR and living. And the inspection is actually, is actually doing really well because of uh strong independent spirit awards points. Anyway. So we're here to talk about the M4G nominations though, <laughs> because a slight in points though they were, they're always fascinating. I'm trying to like pick out like, Movies that got on the board because of the Emphrages. I think we should start with uh, a man called Otto because that was a big old <laughs> goose egg in the in the fantasy league up until the Emphrages came around and they were like, "Not on my watch, honey." Um, <laughs> Tom Hanks, best actor nomination. You betcha. A man called Otto. Wait, I was trying to think of like the comparison for a man called Otto, and it's it's very much doing the a song for. Was it a song for Jordan? Was that what it was called last year? 
where it was like, is that movie coming out? Did it come out? Like, what did I miss it? What's happening? And just a very, very quiet uh, end of year release. But good for the M4Gs for giving it, I believe it got two nominations because it also got um, uh, Best Intergenerational Film. Sure. Yes, 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 yes. What else in terms of like, you know what the M4Gs did? They said, we are going to give She Said some nominations, but mm-hmm. not the ones you think we would, <laughs> which is interesting. They really, the M4Gs really responded to, I would say, the New York Times uh, inter, inter work scenes. Uh, they really responded to the, the workroom of the New York Times nominating Andre Brower, who rules, and Patricia Clarkson, who rules, and whose uh, wig in that movie was rad as hell. Um, <laughs> Ice Queen, Ice Queen Patricia Clarkson with, uh, uh, with that. But interestingly enough, everything you hear about she said. Obviously, Carrie Mulligan is the one who's getting sort of the big push. She got the Golden Globe nomination. Because she's erroneously being run and supporting. Yes. Right. Right. She is the lead for that. I think she's great in that movie. So, like, I'm I'm not as mad about that as as uh, I could be because I don't think she would have a chance in Best Actress. Um, but most people look at that nomination and they're like, you know who should be getting nominated is either Samantha Morton or Jennifer Ely. Exactly. Both of whom are old enough to be nominated in AARP, M4Gs, <laughs> and yet the M4Gs were like, no, Patricia Clarkson instead. And, like, I love Patricia Clarkson. She's very good in this movie. But, like, those other two are standouts, and I right. kind of would have loved if one of those women would have gotten a nomination, even though the roles are very small. The M4Gs could have done, uh, instead of for Women Talking, instead of for Everything Everywhere, the multiple supporting actress nominees could be for She Said. Honestly, Yes. If the Emphrogies wanted to be like, we're going to go 100 million percent all in on She Said and give three of the five nominations and Best Supporting Actress to that movie, I would have been like, yes, that is what you are here for. That is why I love you. Um, they also, I will say, gave two of our faves from TIFF nominations, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, my beloved Judith Ivey from Women Talking. Judith my Ivey, who should be the Women Talking uh, supporting nomination, but no one's talking about it other than the Emphrogies. And then Gabrielle Union, yes. who is probably not going to make it to an Oscar nomination, which is too bad. Which is very depressing. I rewatched that movie recently, and I don't think people are giving it the fair shot it deserves. I was a little more mixed on the movie, but I loved the performances. I thought Gabrielle Union and, and Jeremy Pope should be definitely more in the Oscar conversation than they are. They're kind mm-hmm. of on the fringes of it. It's kind of too bad. Um what movie, else? Have you I seen? mean, they kind of let that movie die too. Um, uh, obviously, another reason they are a major precursor is because they honored Mrs. Paris, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris uh, with That's Leslie right. Manville as they That's should. Right. Yes. Uh, can we talk about the M for G's consistently most? What are you going for here? This is maybe a little cringe category. Go for it. Best time capsule. Every year. Every year, best time capsule. I wonder like, what's happening. Is this happening. supposed to be a good thing? Are right. you just honoring a movie's ability to capture a period? Because we, like a lot of these are, you know, capturing times that were not, you know, happy. When you when you call something a time capsule, sort of colloquially, it tends to be the implication tends to be 
um, it's transportive in a positive way, right? right. Like the you're thing taking you want me to back send to the future. Sure, or like, or like, remember what a kind of idyllic time that was, or. I think the way the Emperor use it is in the broadest possible definition, which is best movie that doesn't take place now. And, <laughs> and that can end up with something like, well, we're going to nominate till. And like, it's very hard to look at a movie like till and be like, remember the time, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like it's just, it's uncomfortable or even something like Armageddon time, which is like not a movie that looks back on the past with rose colored glasses. That's kind of the whole point of Armageddon time. Well, even like Elvis is nominated here and it's like, that is so like uber heightened that it's like, it's right. not really capturing right. the time. It, it takes place in the future on Neptune. So what are but we doing? somehow in the past. Right, Elvis right, is in right. the Star Wars universe. Yeah. Um, yes. I think it's also interesting that Armageddon Time gets nominated in Best Intergenerational Film, which it's not... It's intergenerational in a more confrontational way and yeah, a more that's a good uh, I think that is a good nomination. I think everywhere everywhere all at once is sort of similar to that. Um I think those are good nominations actually. Fablemans, Man Called Auto, they're at least Till's nomination in that category. Um it makes more sense and it, it sort of sits a little better in that like it's I don't know. It's still a little bit like what do you mean by intergenerational? Like what's the intergenerational Sort of Older angle here. people and young people interacting, and the dynamics sure. of intergenerational relationships is how I've always kind of taken that. Which, like Armageddon Time, a movie I have some reservations about. Like those are some of the best scenes in that movie. Yeah, but again, sometimes it just seems like the Emperor's voters are like. A movie with older people and younger people in the same movie. Imagine. Imagine it happening. Um, you know I love Best Grown-Up Love Story. That one uh, nominees were Empire of Light, which had a love story that I don't think is a strong suit of that movie. Eyebrow raised. But um, nomination. I don't begrudge anything about that movie. I think that movie is not my favorite, but... I don't begrudge anything about that. Same movie. thing. I think that movie is very first draft. I wouldn't even say that's a love story. It's like they fuck. Oh, part of it's a love story. They're I don't like know. Friends. I get it's it. It's more friendship cinema than love story. Good luck to you, Leo Grand, which was like set in stone as best. Where was that, by the way, in best intergenerational film? Also, I agree. Uh, it belonged there, but best grown up love story is a good spot for that. I have not seen Netflix's Lady, Ch- Lady Chatterley's Lover, even though that is why. Um, Somewhat bizarrely, Emma Corrin is in the Hollywood Reporter Roundtable. Everyone was like, what movies are they there for? And it's like two movies no one's talking about. Right, exactly. Exactly. I don't understand it. Um, Dale Dickey in A Love Song. Dale Dickey in West Studi in A Love Song, Amazing. which is great. Wonderful. Hope it wins. Uh, and then, of course, another sort of no-brainer, George Clooney and Julia Roberts in Ticket to Paradise, a movie I still somehow have not seen. I haven't seen it either. I want to I wanna see it. Um, so anyway, good Emphrygy's nomination. Somehow they managed to make their way to seven best movies for best picture nominees, best movie for grownups, uh, got to seven nominees, which I will indulge the Emphrygy's, but in general, I think the both of you, both you and I are very much reaching a crisis point of, <laughs> um, too many 
too many nominees in categories. It just doesn't that is my... seem that hard to just develop a practice so that you don't have these funky numbers of nominees. This is my uh, Grandpa Simpson writing into the Sickos at Modern Bride magazine. Just like really <laughs> like just complaining. Just there are too many nominees these days. Please eliminate literally two from this category. And okay, so this is a this is a, a exercise then for you, Chris. Of the seven best movie for grown-ups nominees, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, The Woman King, Women Talking, you have to eliminate two. I know what one of them is. Uh, one that I haven't seen that I really don't want to. Have you still not seen it? I don't care, man. I just, like, for it, some it's reason, the same I thought thing you as the Fast and the Furious it. movies that I'm just like, people don't understand what it's like to see movies like this in the Midwest. Yeah. Like, it, I, well, I you can see it in the comfort of your home now, but, but uh, say what it is, because we haven't said <sighs> Top it. Gun Maverick. I really did think you had like texted Katie and I at one point. We're just like, well, I'm seeing it. So, um, all right. So besides Top Gun Maverick, what's the other of those six that you would lop off? If we're talking about quality of movie, it's got to be either Elvis or Everything Everywhere for me. Mm, okay. but I understand why they're there. The interesting thing for me is if we're talking about movies that I had the most enthusiasm for, my five out of that are Everything Everywhere, Fablemans, Women Talking, The Woman King, and Elvis. And I actually end up leaving Tar off of it. But I recognize that like Tar is a great movie, and I probably would lop off Top Gun Maverick and I guess Elvis because Elvis is uneven, even though like I fucking loved Elvis in general, but like I would probably lop it off for being a little bit uneven. I had a good time at Elvis. Do I think Elvis is a good movie? Jury is out. Here's the other thing. Baz Luhrmann and Gina Prince-Bythewood have showed up on the best director lists of both the Emphrogees, and I believe they both got Critics' Choice nominations, right, for best director, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, but The Woman King is not a Critics' Choice best picture nominee. Which, like, again, they had 11 nominees for, right. like, so, like... Just and 10 best director sake. nominations. It's, like... <clears throat> it's dumb. But I anyway... I Have I think one less cold brew in the morning. I don't know. I think it's interesting now that, like, best director is maybe a category we should talk about in the future. As we are yep. nearing, like, the 20-minute mark of this inset, so we should probably <laughs> wrap it up. But um, best director is getting interesting, and we'll talk about it in the future. For I now, agree. Chris, I want to mention, you are your team of Lydia Tarvivo. I want to bring it up one more time. One of multiple um, Lydia Tarvivos in the Vulture uh, Fantasy League. Well, your team is Banshees of Inisharan, Tar, Bardo, which got its first points finally this week at uh, Critics' Choice. Got Banking a little... on some Oscar points. Yes. Till, Corsage, which is still sort of waiting to enter the chat, The Inspection, Santo Mare, and Fire of Love. And I think you are definitely playing the long game in that I think you're right. Bardo, Corsage, Santo Mare, Fire of Love all feel like movies that have better chances of showing up as Oscar nominees than a lot of these movies that have been getting points so far. Never going to pull a lot of points from any of those, but over the course of the game, I think they could pull plenty of points. Right. And I want to just remind everybody of my team. So your team is currently in 1084th place uh, with 762 points. We're coming from I behind. say that 
<laughs> to explicitly brag that I am currently in 476 point place with uh, 902 points. So thus far, I am upper middle pack. If you look at where the little like progress bar is down the line of the leaderboard, I'm upper middle, which I'm very happy with. My uh, guess my- at this point in the game just going to throw this out there, is if you didn't draft everything everywhere all at once, you probably don't have a chance at winning. I would say that's maybe true. I would, I would, yes, and I definitely did. I did everything everywhere. Banshees, having everything everywhere and Banshees of Inisherin, which are two of the top three movies right now, is really, really helping me. I finally got Pinocchio points this week between the Globes and the, like, Pinocchio points are starting to roll in. A little bit of turning red points. Thus far, my Lyle Lyle crocodile pick has been a dud, which is too bad. <laughs> um, it's outside shot at a Best Original Song nomination is seeming more and more outside by the day. Um, I still believe in Living and Fire of Love to get me some points. And then another dud is uh, Devotion. I have suf- thus far uh, experienced a big old Devotion goose egg. So... There you have it. The Once again, listeners, if you want to follow along ever more closely with our uh, with our progress, and hopefully with yours, that you have a team as well, uh, progress in the Vulture Movie Fantasy League, you can go to moviegame.vulture.com. From there, you can click on a link to our landing page where you can get the uh, complete scores and uh, what lies ahead in terms of scoring. This was the last big precursor points dump of the season we're going to get on january 2nd the rotten tomato scores will all lock in and rotten tomatoes points will be dispersed uh like we said chris avatar box office points are a coming so uh hang on you little water sprites or whatever the fuck those creatures in the in the sea are called good for you you Sure. Yes. Uh, good for you, little uh, uh, space twink. She was a composer uh, of songs. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Moviegame.vulture.com. Uh, click the link to the landing page from there. And we will talk to you next week about further adventures. Maybe hopefully go on a little less long-winded. This is going to be a long podcast. Good, good, good job. Wear it until you love it! But anyway, so back to Randall Wallace, because Braveheart is not the end of that story. Yeah. And the Man in the Iron Mask is also not the end of that story. So Man in the Iron Mask makes a lot of money and doesn't direct another movie until We Were Soldiers in 2002. But in the interim, he is one of, I believe, the credited screen... No, he's the sole credited screenwriter on Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. <laughs> which is... Real Which, I mean, he definitely, that movie went through so many iterations, but he's the one who's credited for it. Razzie nominee for Worst Screenplay, uh, Randall Wallace, <laughs> then reunites with Mel Gibson in 2002 for We Were Soldiers, and then does not direct another movie until 2010, which is aforementioned Secretariat, and then his, at this point, most recent movie is and this I did not know when we made when we did the Secretariat episode. I did not know this until mere hours ago when I finally read his entire <laughs> filmography that Randall Wallace wrote and directed the 2014 film Heaven Is For Real, starring Greg Kinnear as you guessed it, Colton <laughs> Burpo. Or sorry, Todd Burpo. Colton Burpo is the son. Um just a wild filmography to go from Braveheart 
Man in the Iron Mask, Pearl Harbor, We Were Soldiers, Secretariat, Heaven is for Real. I have whiplash. I just, I, I'm really. I mean, this her. one's the outlier, right? This is the weird sibling. Kind kept of. in a dungeon. But even this, so like, okay, two things about Randall Wallace also. One of them is, unsurprisingly, especially once we get to the Heaven for, is for Real thing, um, a devout Christian who, um, among other things in perusing his uh, other work tab of his uh, uh, Wikipedia page, wrote a hymn uh, sure. called Mansions of the Lord that was performed as the recessional song for Ronald Reagan's funeral. Um, was once the commencement speaker at Liberty University, which is Jerry Falwell's university. Jesus fucking Christ. Was once the speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast. Has also done, like, charity work. Has done, you know, Habitat for Humanity and stuff like that. And it was like, there is no intimation that this is a bad person. But, like, clearly, like, the Christianity is very much Liberty Street University. Well, whatever. Like, stepping onto campus at Liberty University. I don't know. I don't want to, I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested in casting aspersions sure, 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 sure. to that degree. But what I'm saying is the Christianity is, is a big part of the man in the iron mask. I think that in, there is no, not by accident is what I would say. I mean, this movie definitely has, it, it feels like it is intending for a certain type of masculinity that I think the material somehow is actively kind of fighting against. Like, this does yeah. feel like it's trying to be some type of, like, dude movie, but right. it's ultimately so, like, bodice-rippy that right. it can't be. <laughs> but with that in mind, I would say the outlier is probably Secretariat, because Secretariat has a female protagonist. But that's also, like, a vaguely Christian movie. Well, and also, there's this sense of, if not necessarily... Like, Americana is also a theme in Pearl Harbor, and We Were Soldiers, and Secretariat. And so, just, like, small-C conservative values. I'm sure he's also probably a large-C, a a capital-C conservative. Uh, I'm just guessing. But, like, this sort of, these very traditional American values, even when you're talking about France, even when you're talking about Braveheart, these ideas of honor and, you know, uh, masculinity and and these kind of things. And that one of the things that sort of tells you that Louis is a bad person is this extravagance right it doesn't Uh like it doesn't go as far as braveheart goes in like throwing a gay guy out the window to his death right but um there is the sense that louis softness and and extravagance and pompousness and and pomp and circumstance are all elements of his wickedness yes or at least indicators of it the other thing i wanted to mention before he moved off of Randall Wallace, um, in perusing his Wikipedia, in perusing people's Wikipedia pages, every once in a while you come across a section and you are like, if that wasn't submitted by, because you know you're not allowed to edit your own Wikipedia page. It has to be done by a third party. But a lot of the times... Much as Lydia Tarr tried. But a lot of the times when you want to edit your own Wikipedia page and you have, like, you can, like, 
outsource that task to somebody else, right? And they can do it on your behalf. And a lot of times you see a section of a Wikipedia page and you see, and it's just like, oh, this is coming from like their <laughs> PR desk. So the early life paragraph um, from when Randall Wallace is one of the, the dead giveaway for the self-penned Wikipedia page uh, section is when it sounds like a section of their resume that they would have had in their early 20s. You know how like when you have a resume and you're in your early 20s and you haven't done enough. So like a big part of your resume is like proficient in Microsoft Word. You know what right. I mean? Like one of those things. Um, his early life section. Some experience in Excel. Born in Jackson, Tennessee, he lived in Memphis and Henderson County, Tennessee, before moving to Virginia. Wallace began writing stories at the age of seven. He graduated from E.C. Glass High School in Lynchburg, Virginia, and attended Duke University, where he studied Russian, religion, and literature, and was a member of the Lambda Chi Alpha fraternity. He put himself through a graduate year of seminary by teaching martial arts. Wallace holds a black belt in karate. Like, that sounds like the special skills section (laughs) of your resume. Right? Like, it almost ends with Wallace got an A in conduct all through high school. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things. Um, Also, red flags abound in that. Lynchburg, Virginia, which is, of course, where Liberty University is uh, located. Um, uh, Seminary school. uh, 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 Fraternity member. Anyway, anyway. anyway. Um, Randall Wallace. quite Quite a guy, seemingly. Interesting character. Interesting character. Very interesting character. Um, so he is the one writing and directing Marionette Mass. But of course, this is based on Alexandre Dumas and uh, his you know works of literature. These are obviously characters who exist, have existed in other films. Other people have made James Whale made a version of the Man in the Iron Mask in 1939. Uh, there were other versions of this uh, story that were turned into movies. So this is not like an original work of Randall Wallace's, but right. it also then becomes telling as to you know what he uh, what he focuses on in this. Can I also say, and I want to throw this by you. Of the casting choices in this, obviously DiCaprio, I think, is catching the right actor at the right time. Like, it was a smart choice. The reason why this movie made as much money as it did was that casting choice. You question if Titanic wasn't involved, would he have been, like, the headliner of this movie? Right. Malkovich, accent-wise, really sticks out in this, but I think is is an interesting actor to watch do his thing. Jeremy Irons, I think, is, is, is... doing his job in this movie. Uh, Gerard Depardieu is on, is arguably the most well cast in that he's the only French person. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, he's playing the oaf too. So yes. Yeah. And Porthos, yes, that's, yes. Um, of the main cast members, the one who I'm like, what is this casting is Gabriel Byrne as D'Artagnan. I'm uh, sorry, as D'Artagnan. And um, I like Gabriel Byrne. I don't think he's a bad actor. I think it's an odd bit of casting for this particular role. I mean, he's hot off usual suspects. I don't think it's that strange. The only thing that makes it odd is like the other three are these Oscar anointed actors and recently Oscar like nominated or won like within the previous decade. Gabriel Byrne, it's weird that he's never been nominated before. It and is, I but feel then like you look we've at, talked about it. 
in a previous episode that he's one of those actors that as soon as he goes to TV, that's where the awards show up for him. Right. He gets uh, the, the awards attention for in treatment. I don't necessarily think it's that he wasn't on a hot streak because you're right. Usual Suspects definitely like was good for him. And he was also in like Little Women in 1994 and, you know, had been showing up in movies. I just feel like the vibe that Gabriel Byrne gives off is he always seems to be like a little bit more, if not cagey or canny, like somebody who sort of, he's doesn't give off a vibe of self-effacing loyalty and sort of, you know, doing the right thing, even though I'm going to sacrifice my life's happiness. Do you know what I mean? That I mean, doesn't seem that. to be his I, vibe. I just think he's very believable as like man with a secret or man who is tortured by something in his past. Like okay. that I do think he is right for. I can give you that one. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, that was my, my main thought sort of going through this is just like, he doesn't fit to me. Like it, he, he sort of sticks out in that way. The other three are character actors and he's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's what he is, but like, he's the closest to the, a protagonist of them. Yes. So it's like, yeah. it may, I think it kind of makes sense that of the, the four musketeers in this movie, D'Artagnan is the more leading male But he's also sidelined for once they actually, once, uh, once uh, Aramis, introduces this knowledge of Philippe, the man in the Iron Mask, D'Artagnan is really sidelined for a good half hour or more of this movie. Oh, okay. We are going to talk about this. Um, (laughs) Aramis comes up with the plot to to spring Philippe out of jail, tells it to the other ones. D'Artagnan is like, I'm out. I can't do this. The other ones are brought around to the plan. And then the plan is executed and it is executed thusly. Aramis um, puts himself into a disguise. And I'm going to put a pin in the word disguise because I'm going to describe the disguise in a second. Um, Disguises himself to go into the Bastille under the guise of he's a priest who's going to administer whatever priestly give communion i guess or something whatever to the man in the iron mask and hatches a plot to uh get him out of prison and what he does is he goes the the most jean parmesan disguise (laughs) i could possibly think of with like the fake nose and the big bushy beard but the uh, this giant cloak so he literally is looking like I recently rewatched uh, Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas because the blank check was covering Henry Selleck. And there's the one guy who looks like an upside down teacup with legs sort of underneath it, right? He was just sort of like this sort of like this reverse umbrella, this uh, whatever umbrella like figure where it's just like this big torso. Are you talking about the mayor? I think that's, I think I am thinking about the mayor. Yeah. Yes. Um, that in real life form is sort of the figure that Aramis undercover looks. And he looks like this because underneath his big billowy cloak is the corpse of a dead body that he is like secreting in by like baby Bjorning it to his body that so that when he's in the cell, he can dump this corpse on the floor and have it, you know, stand in for Philippe. And then 
Philippe then baby Bjorns himself to Aramis, which I would have loved to have watched that moment. And then uh, Aramis puts the cloak over him and like waddle toddles his way out of the Bastille looking once again like Jean Parmesan. And it is, I could not stop laughing. It was so, that to me, I was like, this movie's worth it. I'm glad we did it. See, think, it's entertaining. Who I cares? think that's what I texted I don't you, think like it's that this bad. movie, exclamation part, exclamation part. It's so fucking wild. I don't understand why we don't talk about that scene the way we talk about Brad Pitt getting hit by the car in, <laughs> uh, in Meet Joe Black. It's that degree of, I can't believe they put this on celluloid. It's so fucking crazy. It's I so mean, crazy. I, there you uh, there's some probable intention of whimsy there. Sure. Absolutely. I don't know about intention, but like the whimsy comes across. Yeah, it Randall is, Wallace is not a good enough director to know when this movie should be funny. Like I don't it, think you know. I'm not I'm not prepared to give Randall Wallace uh points for being campy. But that's that te- that is the end result is ultimately <laughs> is just this sight of un- like undercover Jeremy Irons with what you know is what you're supposed to picture Waddling. in your head is Leonardo DiCaprio under his cloak, sort of like legs up and like clinging to him as once again, I keep bringing up the, the visual of a baby Bjorn because that's all I can think of. It's just sort of like that's how he's getting him out of. Out well, of I mean, famously, Jeremy Irons has a papoose. <laughs> he's just, you know, you do one too many Cronenberg movies and you just about, you know, pockets of flesh. Um, it's incredible. Everybody, this movie is streaming for free on Amazon Prime Video. Find it's about the middle part of the movie. <laughs> Fast forward at the very least to this scene. You got to see the disguise Jeremy Irons puts himself in. Meanwhile, Athos and Porthos are just like hanging out in the rowboat, just like waiting for him to be done. It's so wild. It's so amazing. I don't know. I had to. I had to talk about it. It's a great scene. Uh, I hope it's on YouTube so that I can put it on the Tumblr. <laughs> yes. All right. So that's basically that's the scene that I think of. The one that was in the trailers and all the sort of uh, advertisements was, of course, Leo versus Leo. Once finally giving each other the once over two thirds of the way through this movie. And finally, they come face to face and you get the scene, this very sort of like uh, like two house cats. How are we doing it? We're like Louis Leo walks not only into like the right hand side of the frame but then walks around the back of philippe and you're supposed to be like ooh and ah and meanwhile <laughs> i'm just like i've watched soap operas i've watched Anne hache be two sets of you know uh, a pair of twins in a scene with each other like i understand what's going on here i'm sure there was more uh technical achievement in this version but the effect is basically the same which is just like yeah there's a good twin and a bad twin and here we are so <sighs> did it did it live up to what your expectations were leo versus leo i cared maybe less about everything to do with leo in this movie than i expected to it feels very much like the type of i mean you know it's 25 years old so of course it's not the type of thing he would do now or maybe even the type of role that he would take now but like 
I don't know. I don't think he's particularly good in this. He's I think not. he was maybe the standout of the of what's not. He's work. outmatched. The task is is a little bit beyond his capabilities at this point. I mean, it's also probably this is I don't like dogging on this actor in this way, but like not someone known for being able to have a good time. And he's <laughs> right. probably the one who should be having the best time. Well, and some fun with this type of thing. And he just doesn't seem ca- like even as evil Louie, the evil brother, he's not, you know, kind of yeah. it's it tasks him to be mustache twirling, even though he couldn't sprout a whisker at this point if he wanted to. Arguably and, the movie he has the best time in, especially during this phase of his career, is Titanic. Right. Like he's hawking loogies. He's hawking loogies. He's dancing the, the jig. Cars. He's yes. Yeah. He's running around and he's, you know, king of the world and all this shit. Like, yeah, like he's having a great time in that. And yeah. I think Around this time, then, and of course, Titanic comes on the heels of William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, which is also like it's he has more fun in that movie than you would think for playing a tragic hero, uh, hero Romeo. Uh, he's he's also an E. He's dropping E. He's he's hanging out looking at a balconies. He's looking at a fish tank. He's uh, so then that in Titanic. And it's just like, has any boy been more beautiful? And also, has any boy ever been more tragically heroic for a girl than both of those movies back to back? (laughs) And then I think from that point, of course, then you have. Leo himself, I imagine, takes takes some agency in his career choices at this point. But also, and of course, we're talking like Man of the Iron Mask was made before Titanic was a success. But um, there's all you can already see an eye towards him doing different things, right? Making sure that he's not pigeonholed. And so he does Man in the Iron Mask, where he's a dastardly villain. And also, and the also sweet the boy. precious wounded angel baby. He does Woody Allen's celebrity, where he's playing a bratty you know, celebrity who is unlikable. He eventually does the beach, which is a much more sort of complicated hero that I think is an admirable swing of a movie that we should probably do at some point, because I think it would be very fascinating to talk about the beach, especially the whole, uh, Michigan surrounding him being cast in that movie. 100%. It's a really, really interesting story. Um, but that I think you can also probably chalk up to, uh, an effort to, diversify what we see as like the Leonardo DiCaprio type. And eventually he does succeed in that because by the time we get to certainly like gangs of New York and forward, then Leonardo DiCaprio at some point stops being known as like the dreamy boy. Right. Right. Then he says more and more so taken seriously as an actor. Right. I mean, because I feel like this era where he is seen as the heartthrob, he, I mean, it's a performance we cringe about now, but like he ga- he garnered a lot of respect at the time for what's eating Gilbert Grape. And yeah. then he becomes a heartthrob, and that's all that people kind of really see him for. Mm-hmm. He also somewhat becomes a pain in the ass or has a reputation in the press for being a pain in the ass. Right. Which, like, it's interesting that. And this for being movie, a cad, also. Right. Where, like, at the same time that he's playing this pompous evil king, uh, it's also the Titanic 
Oscars where he doesn't get nominated and refuses to go to the ceremony. I know. Not a great Which, look. Like I get it I, wasn't a great look regardless what the reason was. He wasn't working, he right. wasn't filming during right. I understand being wounded. Like the the fact that Titanic was at that point like what tied for the most Oscar nominations of all time, tied with Ben Hur, right? Yes. That was yes. um so could not have been a bigger smash with the Oscars. So not nominating Leonardo DiCaprio, the male lead of that movie, could not help but feel a little pointed, especially when the detractors of that movie were mostly like the screenplay is terrible and you know, DiCaprio isn't all that, essentially. He got, like, a little bit of a lot of, you know, whatever backlash there was for Titanic, some of it fell on him. And then, not only does he not get nominated, but he sort of de facto loses the hot young thing face-off with Matt Damon, who does get right. a Best pe- best Actor nomination. Um, Because that was the year where it was, like, all the great old guard. It was Nicholson nominated for As Good As It Gets. Peter Fonda gets a comeback nomination for Yuli's Gold. Robert Duvall. Duvall for The Apostle. Dustin Hoffman for Wag the Dog. It's like the great stars of the 70s are then welcoming into the fold this new kid. And the new kid is Matt Damon, who is, you know, he and Leo were the two hot young things that year and so he mm-hmm. essentially wins that face off and so i understand where leo is probably licking his wounds a little bit but the best revenge at that moment is truly to do the share thing right you're not nominated for mask you come out and you wear the bob mackie you say clearly i have read the oscars handbook on you know <laughs> for dressing like a for dressing like actress. a serious actress you make the joke you show them that you can take it you show them that you are not you know uh there's no hard feelings, essentially. And then eventually, Cher gets her due. Uh, then I'm not saying that Leonardo DiCaprio gets an Oscar sooner if he shows up to the 97 Oscars and like presents an award or something. But it is ultimately a look that suggests a little bit of immaturity, let's say. And it results in kind of... Uh, it takes until I think... Is it The Aviator he's nominated for next? I don't think he's, he's nominated he's not nominated for that. Catch Me If You Can, and he totally no. should have been. He's 100%. wonderful. Yes. Um, obviously not nominated for Gangs of New York. Kind of in the same way that, like, that role in Titanic 2, that, like, headlining role, is probably not the one that's ever going to get well, and I also by nature of the role. I also don't think he's great in Gangs of New York, but mm, there's a lot that doesn't work in that. Movie. Yeah, but I think he's like one of the more visible examples of of things that don't work. Of but yes, not greatness. Yeah, but yeah, The Aviator is his next nomination, which at that point is 11 years after his previous nomination for Gilbert Grape. So yeah, it took a while. It took like multiple Scorsese movies, uh, and him playing like Oscar's favorite genre, which is biopic to you know to get back into and then once he's there then it's you know hot and heavy right then it's blood diamond and wolf of Where wall his street movies barely miss best picture nominations right um but also that he's getting best actor nominations left and right and um ultimately it is kind of interesting that he wins for the revenant on the basis of this pacino-esque uh, isn't it time that we finally give Leo his Oscar? It's only his fifth nomination for best actor, for, for fifth acting nomination at that point, which Pacino was on his, I want to say seventh. Like how many nominations mm, for Paul Newman? Eighth. I want to look these up really quickly. Um, 
because give me half a second of dead air. I mean, the thing is, if you break it down to actual nominations, you're right about Leo. It's not as overdue as a lot of people have been in the past, especially a lot of lead actors uh, that we treat of similar stature to Leo now. But like, it's also just the, I think the level of success especially award success that his body of work generally receives like there's not a whole lot i mean like leo's someone who's going to be hard for us to get to a six-timers club because there's not a lot of movies that he makes anymore that don't get oscar nominations i think that's right um pacino was on his eighth nomination when he won for scent of a woman Color of Money was Paul Newman's eighth acting uh, nomination. Of course, a year after he wins an honorary Peter Oscar. Tool, I think, was nominated for eight and never won competitively. And never won, right. Richard Burton was around seven or eight. Um, so yeah, so like for Leo to sort of jump the queue on the uh, It's Time <laughs> campaign feels a little bit uh, in keeping with the 21st century of it all, which is just like, we, you know, we're impatient about everything. And, you know, uh, Michelle Williams has lost four times and and it's intolerable that she hasn't won. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? Just like, I, I don't feel right. like we temperamentally have the patience for a Deborah Carr anymore or a Peter O'Toole or a Richard Burton situation where people are being nominated seven, eight times. I guess Glenn Close flies in the face of that, but people kind of like, go out of their mind imagining the Glenn Close of it all, right? Like, it's Mm -hmm. such a, it's almost unfathomable to have that degree of uh, being so close and not getting it. And God, these people would never have, wouldn't have survived being an All My Children fan. (laughs) They wouldn't have survived Pacino. They wouldn't have survived Lucci, I'll tell you that much. Um, But yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that that's uh, how that went down. It's a it's a fascinating career. I don't always I haven't always loved him, DiCaprio, but um, I maybe like him a little bit more after his Oscar. Yeah, I of course loved I him was in the lead up to it because like yeah. at a certain point, like I I love him in Catch Me If You Can. I actually kind of liked him in uh, Don't Look Up. Um, I don't know and about like that. my favorite performance of his is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I hundred percent same. I think he's tremendous in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, would have absolutely supported that being his Oscar. Of that's such a hindsight thing of just like if you knew this was coming down the pike. Um, and of course, we've talked a ton of times about the the meager competition that he was up against in 2015. Anyway, but um, yeah, I'm favorite Leo performances. I do think he's very I think Romeo plus Juliet is great in and of itself. Um is a is is that's something that I appreciate much more as a filmmaking endeavor than an actor's movie, but I think he's wonderful in that. I think he's great. Um Catch Me If You Can, one hundred percent top two Leo for me. That it's that and I think um Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for me. I kind of run counter to some of the other ones. I don't love him in The Departed. I don't like I Wolf of Wall Departed. Street. So like that I sort of set aside. I didn't like Great Gatsby. So that I sort of set aside. Um, 
I recognize that he's giving a very good performance in Revolutionary Road, but that's another movie that I don't really like very much. I think he's giving a great movie star performance in Inception, although I don't know if I would say that's like acting at its finest or whatever, but I think he's great in Inception in a movie that I really love. But I think if I'm talking about my top two, it's Catch Me If You Can and it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, I think those are... I think some of my frustrations with him as an actor are when he, you know, gets caught in his isms and such. Sure. Uh, which, like, there, you can pinpoint any number of even his good performances where those are really present. But, I don't know, there's something about those two performances that feel so atypical to his work that it just feels like he's very spry and light on his feet, and also, mm-hmm. like, with ease, showing his real range as a performer mm-hmm. he's really funny in both of those yeah um and i don't think he gets to do that a lot or it doesn't seem like he is letting go as much as he is letting go in those performances i don't want to put you on the spot but i'm intrigued by when you say his isms because like i would if if you're able to sort of like pinpoint what you mean by that i would be very fascinated he has a way of speaking and he has a way of mugging to the camera i mean like it's become memes for things like inception you know where he like when he's getting serious he'll like squint you know squint and yeah you know he has a lot of those yes he has a turn of phrase sometimes that it's just like you've just made 15 lines sound exactly the same yeah I will yeah. say he has uh, a bag of tricks. The the vision of Leo squinting in Inception is an expression I find myself making a lot in real life, so I find a little bit of fellowship <laughs> with him with that. Um but I also just think in general, I am much more interested in DiCaprio. There's a there's a version of Leo taking a chance and i'm using scare quotes here in a movie like the great gatsby or django unchained or the wolf of wall street when it's like he's very sort of like it he's still ensconced in these very sort of safe projects which are these like untouchable auteurs right who like are are going to you know there's there's a soft landing spot for him no matter what right where he's Mm -hmm. like he's he's going out there in his performances, but in a way that feels very expected. Whereas like something like the beach, I find much more fascinating. And we'll talk about it when we eventually do that movie. Um, For as much as Danny Boyle was coming off of train spotting by that point, he was also coming off of a life less ordinary. He wasn't like this bulletproof director. He was a director who was, you know, kind of putting himself on the line with the beach and DiCaprio was right there with him. And I like that the beach doesn't fully succeed. I think it's much more interesting of a DiCaprio performance because of that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Catch me if you can. He's got Spielberg. So that's sort of the same with the other stuff where it's like, you know, that's a soft place to land and he's in the, he's in the hands of a director who is not going to get, you know, dinged for you know he's not gonna let him fail right but Mm -hmm. i think he's just in general you know he catching lightning in a bottle with that performance i think he's he's just tremendous in it um anyway i mean of those two performances that like we both are in agreement are his best like i think dicaprio is such a mannered performer but his best performances are also really mannered and kind of like 
use his manneredness to enhance what the character is actually doing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, I mean, like, it's almost turning it on its head in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's, like, it's highlighting all those mannerisms to make this really egotistical character and make fun of it and make it funny. Yeah. You know. No, I think you're totally right. And of course, like the mannerisms in Catch Me If You Can are because he's doing this, these cons and it's all about like yeah. the mannerisms are his actual charm. Uh, I'm excited for Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't very don't know very much about that character, but um, I'm, I'm worried that uh, this is why I thought of his his manneredness as a performer because i'm a little worried that this could be a very mannered performance in a way we don't like from him but Mm -hmm. i'm so excited for that movie yeah yeah um who else do we want to talk about in this movie i mean the male headlining cast is kind of all interesting if you look at them together as a group in terms of uh their history with oscar like jeremy irons is only ever nominated for reversal of fortune and wins obviously but never returns to yeah uh, the oscars at all well i want to sort of look at his where he's at in his career at this point right because at this point he's almost a decade removed from the oscar uh, he's about eight years removed from Reversal of Fortune. And the 90s for Irons, he works a decent amount. But, like, obviously, like, the most well-known role in the 90s for him is animated, right? He's Scar. He's the voice Scar. of Scar in The Lion King, which is, like, one of the great voice performances in a Disney movie, I think, of all time. I genuinely yeah. feel like it's it's such a highlight. But others, like, he makes... Damage for Louis Mal. He's in the Cronenberg uh, adaptation of M. Butterfly. We talked. We've talked about House of the Spirits on this uh, podcast. He's in the Adrian Line remake of Lolita. He's in the Bertolucci movie Stealing Beauty. He's in Die Hard with a Vengeance as uh, <laughs> the I believe brother <laughs> of Alan Rickman's character. I've never seen Die Hard with a Vengeance. I've only ever seen the first Die Hard. Um. Skip two, just watch Vengeance. It's fun. So it's an odd decade for him, right? Where that's a lot of range, though. In it the is the type of things that he's doing, the type of people he's playing. That is true, but not beside, with the exception of The Lion King. Like even Die Hard with a Vengeance, as I'm sure I imagine that thing made money. I don't remember that movie like bombing or anything like right. that. But it's not like that movie is well remembered within the Die Hard sort of universe, right? Um. And otherwise, it's just a lot of movies that were, you know, started small and stayed small. Or, like, Damage gets an Oscar nomination, but it's Miranda Richardson, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Stealing Beauty launches or helps to launch Liv Tyler, but people maybe don't remember that he's in it. And I don't know. It's interesting. It's an interesting – it's an interesting decade for him. And then he doesn't ever really reach – he never gets back to even that level, right? Then it's a lot of just sort of as he gets older, kind of older British guy roles, and yet he delivers so often, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you are casting Jeremy Irons, he is going to, you know... Give uh, you Jeremy Irons. I think of even something like Margin Call, right? Where he's in that for like a couple of scenes. And he's so you know, effective in that. Or um, 
I mean, obviously House of Gucci. Where... I was going to say, where did you fall? Remind me where you fell on the what's the worst performance of House of Gucci? Because I thought Jeremy Irons was the worst in House of Gucci. I don't know if I thought he was the worst performance in House of there's Gucci. The, there's the House of Gucci spectrum where it's like, okay, where do you where do you align with Jeremy Irons' performance? And where do you align with Pacino's performance? Because Pacino, to me... A tier. Pacino's a lot of fun. Maybe I did think Pacino Jeremy Irons the was the worst. champagne of House of Gucci. It's tough for me to remember at this point. It's all it's all uh, a blur because I I remember wanting more from that movie, and yet I think my least favorite performance is probably Adam Driver. And I hate to say that because I love Adam Driver, but just like he has that one really good scene. But like that, there should it, there should be more to that performance. And I'm disappointed that we like. Salma Hayek's not much of anything in that movie, but I don't think that's her fault. I think it's an underwritten character. We don't really get as much of her. But also, like, I was expecting one delicious scene of Salma Hayek in that movie, and I didn't get it. Um, Which is why I like Jared Leto, because at least he's, like, delivering the Chef Boyardee that I'm looking for in that movie. (laughs) Um, But, like, yeah, I don't know. I thought, I mean... Jeremy Irons is tremendous in Watchmen. I will say that. Like, yes. that is not a movie, obviously. It's a miniseries. But, like, was fantastic in that. He's also ends up doing a lot of, like, he's in the Borgias, right? He's in um, uh, the HBO movie Elizabeth I. He does a lot of costume drama. A lot of very, like, high-end costume drama. Very sort of, like, well-funded costume drama. Right. Um, I will also say, as I am... Uh, bound to do he god in terms of accents he is sporting the wildest southern bayou uh, accent (laughs) in my beloved uh supernatural teen romance beautiful creatures that uh which i still need to catch up he and emma thompson Emma Thompson's bad accent is at least character based. You eventually realize, but like he and Emma Thompson and like Margot Martindale and all of the adults in this movie are really just like competing for who is going to go more over the top with their accent. And it's really, really thrilling to watch them compete <laughs> on that level. Um, yeah, I love him though. I love Jeremy Irons. Or as Lisa Simpson uh, says in anagram form, uh, Jeremy's iron who uh i don't know i fucking love him i think he's so good what do you think of him in this movie um i mean aside from Depardieu, i didn't really have a huge (laughs) opinion on any of these performances yeah um i mean Depardieu, we could like probably quickly say at the top of this decade was the nomination for uh, Cyrano. He also had Green Card, which was a big hit at the time and won him the Globe. Um, The one that I was most kind of fascinated by, mostly just because of the timing of it, was Malkovich. Because, Mm. A, Malkovich, as you mentioned earlier, being Peter Sarsgaard's dad is itself interesting but this is a year before being john malkovich so it's like it feels like it's on the cusp of uh or it's like right at the edge of the movie's jokes that he would be in a movie like this sure yes um 
He is not a jewel thief. What's the joke? I was going to say, it's the jewel thief, right? I loved you in the yeah. jewel thief movie. Yes, it's a great joke. <laughs> I a never fantastic. did a jewel thief. It's <laughs> great. What a great movie. Um, back to Depardieu for half a second, though. True or false, Gerard Depardieu's early 90s popularity in Hollywood slash America is not entirely unlike Roberto Benigni's appreciation in Hollywood slash America at the end of the 90s. I mean, I think by nature of Depardieu being in this movie, it lasts longer than Benigni. Because Benigni... I agree with that. Immediately. The second he stood on that chair... You've said this before. It was like instant buyer's remorse. But uh-huh. like, yeah. I would say it's like instant, like, well, we're not hiring this guy. Um, because he, <laughs> this is the thing, because there can't be enough Pinocchio movies. He immediately <laughs> makes a Pinocchio movie that's like disaster to the point that when he made the COVID Pinocchio movie, so not good. that COVID Pinocchio so movie, good. the other COVID Pinocchio movie, not that COVID Pinocchio movie, the other the other, other one, movie. the other other. Yeah. There's like been four movies since COVID. Um, it's yeah. like every time we get a new variant of COVID, we get <laughs> a new Pinocchio movie. Um, That's what the variant does, is it infects a whole lot of people and then creates out of thin air a new Creates Pinocchio a Pinocchio movie, movie no yeah. one asked for. Yeah. I like the 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 2020 Benini Pinocchio movie. It's so fucked up and weird and un, like uh, unsettling. That is true. It also made me want to chew cinder blocks. Like <laughs> I hated my life watching that movie. I really enjoyed watching that movie, I will say. Um about to watch Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio soon uh and will uh, excitedly report back. John Malkovich uh, was married to Glenn Headley from 1982 to 1988. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. May she rest. Queen yes. Glenn Headley. What a talented marriage that would have been. I love learning about character actors who are married to each other. Like, nothing brings me more joy mm-hmm. than thinking of, uh, like, Anthony Edwards and Mayor Winningham just that uh, that 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 idea of a, of a marriage like that or like uh, Elizabeth Marvel and Bill Camp like one of those oh, marriages I love the Marvel Camp household Ed Harris and Amy Madigan scowling from the front row of the Oscars at Elia mm-hmm. Kazan like just my favorite genre of relationship is older character actors who are married Love it so much. I genuinely love it so much. Um, weird, weird gays who love the cell, and also uh, character actors who are married. That is, those are the things that I that I. We'll find more. Life. Gary's tell us who your favorite character actors who are married are. Yes, um, uh, I love them so much. Anyway, Man in the Iron Mask, yes. nominated by the Costume Designers Guild for excellence in costume design on film. Is that just most costumes? I think that's just most best fabric to them, but it sounds like most costumes. Most most pleasant fill. bolts of fabric used in a in a film in 1998, something like. Well, that. here's the other nominees. They might tell you okay. that it is not most costuming because it's also beloved, Mask of Zorro, and the Truman Show. Truman Show's an interesting inclusion in that, actually. I think that 
kind of shows you how widely embraced the Truman Show was and yeah. how strange it was it didn't get that Best Picture nomination. Very true. Very true. Or, but lo- you know, more than it ultimately did. It got the director nomination for Peter Weir. Beloved and um, what else? Zorro, The Mask of Zorro. Zorro and Pleasantville, the winner, were Oscar nominees, oh. obviously. Um, oh, Pleasantville. I love it. I love Pleasantville. Um, actually, I don't think Zorro was a costume design nominee, but obviously Elizabeth Shakespeare and Love get nominated. No idea why they don't show up here. Mask of Zorro and Man in the Iron Mask covering the gamut of uh, facial coverage in terms of a mask. <laughs> they like, were nominated solely for the mask. Like do, to, doing very different things with masks. One is full coverage, very obviously metallic and oh. heavy. The other one is 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 barely there. Just sort of you know, eye black could could accomplish the same thing. Zorro not nominated, replaced at the Oscars by one of my very favorite nominations, Sandy Powell for Velvet Goldmine. Ah. Uh. Now that is a movie with costumes, right now, there. Now, bitch, that is most costumes. That is that is some low hanging leather pants on on Ewan McGregor. That is uh, uh, Jonathan Rhys Meyers uh, dressed up as a dandy for a photo shoot. <laughs> that is uh, oh god, scarves on scarves on scarves on young Christian Bale in that movie. Um, Tremendous, tremendous costume work. Also, the best costume, lots of nudity. Lot. Listen, the best, best costume, no costume. Best costume is no costume. Sometime, yeah. All right. Um, what else do we want to talk Leo about? Leo, not Leo. One actually, the Razzie for worst screen couple for uh, himself. All right, Razzies. Once again, you're getting too cute here. Big you're... fuck off to the Razzies because they also nominated the Spice Girls in this category. Boo. Which, like, boo. Uh, what an honor to all those other nominees to share space with the Spice Girls. Deeply boo. Deeply bad. All right. Um, wait, I want to dip into my notes. Um, wait a minute. Excuse me, sir. I do actually need you to clarify this. Please tell me you are booing the Razzies and not the Spice Girls. Obviously, right I'm now. booing the Razzies. Booing okay, the Razzies for disrespecting the Spice Girls. Booing the Spice Girls no. will get me to not do the show oh my god the end of this had oscar buzz would be uh show booing me i would never i would never be the spice girls absolutely not okay um Uh, porthos hung like a donkey skarsgård and malkovich voices raul and christine wishing you were somehow here again oh okay um the scene in the in the gardens of versailles where they're chasing around the pig and um and then Louis devises a, a dastardly plan uh, involving the sprinkler systems to to corner Christine and and lure her away from Sweet Roll. And all I could think of is that Kate Winslet did not design the water features at Versailles for them to be used in such a <laughs> viciously manipulative manner in this way. Uh, Justice for a Little Chaos, uh, a movie that... Very few people listening to this podcast probably saw. Um, what else? Versailles doesn't look as big as the Mauritania. <laughs> uh, da, 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 da. Oh, the secret passageways. I can't believe that they like Chekhov is rolling in his grave that they like introduced these secret passageways and do so comparatively little with them. Like, I needed to have 
some antics or something, something spectacular. Yeah, like there needs to either be a rescue through the secret passageway, there needs to be a Bacchanal orgy sequence through a secret passageway. Like, literally, the only thing we get is when Christine... I shouldn't laugh. It's very like Christine uh, hangs herself outside the window. And all we do is we hear a yelp and D'Artagnan goes into the room and Louis literally like it's in Christine's room. Like that's where the sun and he goes through the secret passageway to her room and he sees that she's um, all right. Jean Parmesan. Um, oh, this quote. Um, oh, D'Artagnan. Like, honestly, this line, I almost had to like catch, like gather myself where he says, uh, to uh, Anne, his beloved Anne of Austria. I know that to love you is a treason against France, but to not he- to not love you is a cre- is a treason against my heart. At which point, I th- excellent greeting card. I threw the remote control across the room. <laughs> um. Oh. Uh. When what what greeting card can I get that says? I love you, but I might also be headed by the king. <laughs> I found it. Found it. Um, when when the musketeers get the jump on Louis and plan to uh, put him in the Iron Mask the first time, and Aramis says, it's Judgment Day. The balls. When the Hamilton comes through the secret passageway. The balls on Randall Wallace to throw a line like that into a movie featuring the Three Musketeers. Like, honestly. All right, finally, Chris. Um, and obviously you can uh, give your wrap-ups as well. But before we uh, get too far down the path towards the IMDb game, I think the fact that we are talking about a movie about the Three Musketeers does somewhat demand that we engage in the thought experiment known as fuck, Mary kill with oh. Athos, Porthos okay. and Aramis. So D'Artagnan is, is as he is for much of this movie uh, cast aside. So in the, the, the versions of, okay. Cause I would definitely kill D'Artagnan. We all don't would. talk to me like that. We all would. Don't tell me that. Uh, it, what would be treason against your heart? <laughs> don't talk to me I'm like not, that. I'm not. I'm not getting with you. With your, with your, with your fucking it's little, your little mustache. No, uh, the version, uh, the versions of Athos, Porthos, and Aramis that we get in this movie. Fuck, mm. Mary, kill. I think I'm gonna kill Aramis. Okay, Jeremy Irons. I'm sorry, you do not do it for me. I would marry Malkovich because, like, he's a he's a good dad, stable person. You know, yeah, and then obviously I'm fucking Porthos. This is this was my inclination as well, but I would imagine, especially with the limited range of prophylactic options in that era, that fucking Porthos earns you a lifetime of hurt afterwards. Um, just they had not discovered penicillin. Just imagining the consequences which like we all want to take a ride on that wagon and yet um maybe the 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 juice isn't worth the squeeze as it were um which is where i'm totally with you i marry athos like that is he's a good man he's a probably like abnormally sensitive for that era like certainly like above and beyond kind i'm sure malkovich is a very sensitive lover no, I just mean in terms of like the character and like at that time in world history, like oh, of course, like 
a sweet man. It's probably hard to find a little bit. And so, again, like you say, good dad, good surrogate dad. Um, uh, that's 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 a keeper right there. I would probably roll in the hay with Aramis because I do find Jeremy Irons to be uh, quite the hottie. But also, um, those religious guys, when you let them let loose, man, like all that repressed Jesuit uh, heat, uh, something's going going off. That that does sound appealing. Yeah. However, yeah. He also narrates the movie, and you don't want him narrating your bed play. Oh. That shit would get annoying. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, uh, for, for for centuries afterward. I do, I do hear you on the Bless Me, Father, for I have sinned. Right. Argument. But you don't want him being like, and then for centuries afterward, this lovemaking was known as, you know, the finest lovemaking in all the land. And you're just like, <laughs> shut up and like... Get down there, Aramis. I suppose the 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 other thing against Porthos is like they have full on sex in a haystack in this movie. No wonder which... he's got kidney stones, man. Like what's what's getting up and up up in there? Uh, yeah, uh, hay. Hay is prickly. Hay is very prickly. Hay is not comfortable for bare skin. No, uh, hay, as the saying goes, is for horses and is not for uh, for for making love upon. Although I imagine at that time. Unless you're in like comfy Louis the Fourteenth Versailles poster four poster bed or whatever, you're probably not sleeping on the most comfortable things just in general. No, like at the very best, you're getting like a sack stuffed full of lamb's wool, scratchy, like scratchy lamb's wool that probably Lumpy. has like fleas Lumpy. in it or something. God like forbid that. you get sweaty and it pulls all of the wool together no wonder these people wanted to assassinate louis like truly the the gulf between life in versailles and like lumpy wool sack living life for even you know jesuit priests and whatnot like no wonder it's fucking off with his head at this point i wouldn't survive during these times no i'm very very glad that i was born in these awful times where at least i can like you know catch a couple z's on a on a, a mattress topper or something like that god bless should we uh move on to the imdb let's do it let's 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 go let's let's why don't you explain go. to our listeners what the imdb game is yeah every week we end our episodes with the imdb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that imdb says they're most known for if any of those titles are television voice only performances or non-acting credits we mentioned that up front after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles release years as a clue and if that is not enough it just becomes a free-for-all of hints that's the answer would you like to give or guess first i'll guess first all right so uh we've been talking about leo at the height of titanic success he had a fitful uh kind of rebound to uh come back from it with his projects i also chose for you someone who right alongside him had very similar uh you know post-success project uh, stumbles uh, with Kate Winslet. Have we never Love done interest Kate co-star. Winslet? Wow. And bestie for life. Uh, well, I won't say the aforementioned A Little Chaos, even though I do think she's wonderful in that, and that is the one uh, context in which I met her that one time was at the premiere for A Little Chaos. Um, well, Titanic. Titanic. Obviously. Um, 
Oh, her Oscar poses uh, some interesting conundrums because famously nobody ever saw the reader uh, as as Hugh Jackman expressed in song that one time. But I am going to guess it. I'm going to guess the reader. Incorrect. Fuck. Okay. Oscar win, not in her known for. Kate gives you a real tough set of options because it's like lots of movies, a lot of them small but memorable. A lot of awards. How about... A lot of... She's gone into franchises now. How about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Eternal Sunshine, correct. Eternal Sunshine. Shari, I said Eternal Sunshine. Lija. Lija, what are you doing? That's No, that's more... That's Elizabeth Ashley introducing Hall and Oates. Now you are going to get me on some type of train as if Liza in... The alternate universe where Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind is a Best Picture nominee and Liza Minnelli <gasps> is the one who gives the clip speech for it. You know. Ladies and gentlemen, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. David and I watched it together. <laughs> and we wait, thought it was great. Wait. We found it so relatable. We really didn't want to remember being together. Have you been sitting on an A-plus Liza Minnelli impersonation this entire time? Do you know how easy it is to give it A minus? Uh, I couldn't do it. Did you listen to mine just there? Mine was horrible. As I said, it was much more Elizabeth <laughs> Ashley. This is why I said a B minus version of Liza should not have won that snatch game. <laughs> oh, we're talking. Wait, who did Liza? Uh, Alexis. Alexis Michelle. Michelle. All right. due respect to Alexis Michelle, who gets dumped on a lot. That Liza was not a winning Liza. Get ready for All Stars Eight. Um. Anyway, okay. What? saying but just saying okay um where are we going where are we going where are we going with kate you have one in you've got correctly guessed two you've gotten one wrong okay okay i'm gonna get this one wrong but i i just want to throw it out there because i don't know why maybe it's because she's on the poster for it but part of me wants to just say quills incorrect not quills her sag nominated performance yeah all right what are the years i'll get it now once i get the years 1995 and 2008. Okay, 1995 is Sense and Sensibility, I should have guessed. 2008 is the other, uh, not the reader, but Revolutionary Road. Yes. Okay, all right. The definitive answer on what she should have actually been nominated and... IMDb has weighed in. Yes. Okay. All right. No Steve Jobs. No... I was going to guess that too. Fix it, Steve. Fix it, IMDb. Put her in there for Steve Jobs instead of Honestly, at this Road. point, fix it. Put Mayor of Easttown on there. I think that's some of her best work. Oh, 100%. All right. Chris, for you, I delved into that aforementioned list of movies that opened against Titanic during its stellar run, uh, one of the first of which was the James Bond feature Tomorrow Never Dies featuring a... Yes. Uh, okay theme song by Sheryl Crow, I'll just say. Uh, it was No, The World Is Not Enough, as I mentioned. It is a very snoozy the time. Uh, Bond theme. I'm, you know, good for Sheryl Crow for, for you know, for taking the leap there. Um, anyway, uh, also in that movie, though, playing I'm almost certain a villain, even though I, I, I imagine maybe the villain of Tomorrow Never Dies, is one Jonathan Price. Jonathan 
price. No television, no voiceover. Four feature films of one Jonathan Price. Brazil. No. Shockingly enough. Wow. No. Um, Tomorrow Never Dies. Correct. Yes. The Wife. Correct. Um, ooh, what? I just, uh, Evita. No. Not Evita. Wow. Another surprise. All right, that's two strikes. Your years are 1998 and 2019. Okay, so the same year we're talking about in something very recent. Um, 2019. So that would have been the same year that The Wife was released in theaters. No. Year after. Huh? Wait, what'd you say? What year was that? That was 2018. What was? The Wife? The Year of the Wife. Yes. The Year of the Wife. That's in the Chinese Zodiac, in fact. That was known as the Year of the Wife. <laughs> yes. Um. Okay, so 2019 would have been the year after the Wife. Um. What did, What was his, like, cash-in on that movie? No, it's uh, Two Popes. Two Popes, yes. Speaking of Liza. Uh, yes. Nominated for the Two Popes, Dos Popes. Yes. Uh, 98. So 98 is the same year as Man in the Iron Mask. Yes. What was he doing around then? I can't believe Brazil isn't there. Um... This is going to be, a, this is definitely the tough one of all of them. It's a movie that I heard, I've heard of, obviously, but I've not seen. Um, he's kind of far down the cast list for being this being one of his IMDb movies. Um, it is a sort of action thriller, but like a like a Tony action thriller, like a you know, it's classy. It looks it looks classy. Um, uh huh. Starring. Is it, like the... is it what? Go ahead. No, what are you gonna say? Is it like The Rock? No, classier than The Rock. The Rock is Michael Bay trash. This is like um Champagne. Yeah, it's a it's a screenplay by a very famous playwright. It is directed Tom by Stoppard. No. It is directed by a very well regarded action director, and it is starring a two time Oscar winner. Oh. Okay. Um I'm guessing it's like if he's well, you're saying he's far down on the cast. It's got to be a big ensemble. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a decent ensemble. Okay. There are names 19... that we know in this ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. 1998, two-time Oscar winner. Yes. Had they already won yes. any of those Oscars? Both of them by then. Yes. Both of them. And in fact, this Oscar, this this Oscar winner. What is he doing at this point in his career? Um, he's still doing good stuff, but like he's maybe about to embark in uh, not one of his best decades, perhaps. Um, Interesting. Who has two Oscars at that point? De Niro. Uh huh. Yes. Ronan. Yes, Ronan. Very good. I have not seen Ronan, but I know it's in 1998. But were not my clues all accurate, right? That's like yes, it's a, it's a it's De Palma, right? It's it's uh, no, it's John Frankenheimer. 
from a script by David Mamet. Got it. Um, but it's like it's sort of it's bespoke action thriller, right? It's it's sure, it's sure, tailored sure, sure. and uh, and and who did the cinematography? I wonder. Give me a second. Um, because I imagine it's probably somebody very talented and very uh, accomplished. Robert Frace. I don't know who that is. Frace. Anyway, uh, have not seen Ronan, but like the cast is really interesting. Jean Renault, obviously, Natasha McElhone, Stellan Skarsgård, Sean Bean, uh, Jonathan Price, Katarina Witt, the uh, the ice skater, the figure skater. Katarina Witt is apparently sure. in this movie. Not even just as herself, but as like a character. It's very interesting. Ronan. Who knew? All right, right, Joe, I think that's our episode. If you want more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you should check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at head underscore Oscar underscore buzz. If you're listening to this as it drops, you have about 24 hours to get your (laughs) mailbag questions in. So check us out on Twitter and Tumblr for that. Or you can email us at headoscarbuzz at gmail.com. Joe, where can our listeners find more of you? Uh, somehow still on Twitter, uh, at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. Uh, it's about to become even more unbearable with this 4,000 character limit on tweets. My God, uh, help us all. Also on Letterboxd, also as Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I promise none of my reviews will be... For 4,000 4, characters. Maybe. I don't know. I make no promises, actually. Some people on Letterboxd will just, like, l- post the first like five paragraphs of their review and then link it i'm like do you have to do that many paragraphs if you're just gonna be linking your own review i generally i don't want to whatever if you do that if you if you just post a link to your review on letterboxd go with god get your traffic however you want to it is not my favorite genre of letterboxd comment let's say Letterbox should be pithy because a letterbox log itself is not a review that's not a review it's an impression, right? It's a, it's a, it's a joke. Sometimes a, I'll, I'll, I'll muse for a couple paragraphs, but like it's, it's if I'm music. drunk, I'll throw some word salad in Letterbox. I don't care. Yeah, listen, but like everybody should live their life the way they want to live. That's what I say, especially on Letterbox.com. Smoke if you got them. Uh, we would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Kevin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So give us one for all, all for one <laughs> nice review. Uh, that's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, Merry Christmas. Bye. Merry Christmas. Now it's all for one.